You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to M Pavilion 2019, designed by Glenn Merkett. It's really great to see you all here today. And of course, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land at which we're meeting tonight, the Yalukut Wulam of the Boon people, one of the five major language, one of the five uh, nations of the Greater Kulin Nation. And I'd like to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and in particular to those Aboriginals who are here with us today. Thank you very much. And, yeah, sorry. And, um, uh, but what I would also like to uh, say a few words about is this particular series, Black Architecture. Um, in 2017, uh, during the M Pavilion season that year, we started a regional program where we had an opportunity to bring together um, designers and practitioners from around Australia, and we invited Sarah Reese to help uh, work with us on, on delivering that program item. And um, Sarah Lynn uh, invited people from, um, from far out regional Australia, from across the country, um, into Melbourne for a conversation around um, uh, Indigenous perspectives on design and architecture. And what we learned in that day-long session was there was a, a big conversation to have, there was, there was many different um, aspects of that conversation that uh, people really wanted to explore. There was a, a real desire to share information and we had barely touched the surface. We'd, we'd really, in that conversation, had just realised that we need to have a conversation. Um, and it's been a really exciting, real privilege to work with Sarah Lynn over last season and now here into our third um, season of the Black Architecture series um, to take um, a journey through lots of different pathways of this conversation. Um, and so um, I'd really like to thank you for your contribution to that program. And um, it's one of the most valuable things I think that we're able to achieve here. So thanks for that. And um, this is the first of this year's season. So Sarah Lynn. Thank you, Sam. And we certainly wouldn't be able to do it without M Pavilion's support. Uh, and I would also like to acknowledge the fact that this, uh, in the way that it's set up, at least in my relationship so far with Sam, that it is a culturally safe space for us to have these conversations. So that's why we keep having them. Um, I too would like to acknowledge the Yalakut Wilm of the Bunurung as the traditional custodians of the land that we gather on today. Um, and uh, in a, in a sense, if we listen to Annie Caroline, who's a senior elder of this country, who explains that Womanjika means uh, welcome, uh, sort of why are you here, <laughs> what's your purpose for coming? Um, in response to that, I think our acknowledgement is to sit here today and to speculate on the, or our purpose, sorry, is to sit here today and discuss elements of what it is to be Indigenous working in architecture or non-Indigenous working in this field and what that means uh, for all of us moving forward so that we can create genuine environments that reflect where we are and who we are as a collective. Um, I probably have spoken on behalf of you in the acknowledgement, but feel free to have your own if you like. Uh, so tonight, as Sam said, is our first Black Architecture event of the series and we're talking about cultural protocols. So loosely, this, uh, this topic uh, has been defined as cross-cultural design often requires a set of protocols to maintain respect throughout the design process. So we'll be exploring what these protocols are and how they can be embedded in a way, in the way that we create and curate. Um, I'm going to hand over to our lovely speakers to introduce themselves uh, and then might start with a few questions from me. Hello, my name is Miles Russell-Cook. I'm curator of Indigenous Art at the National Gallery of Victoria. So for the 
for most of my life, all of my life, I've lived and worked on the lands of the Bunurong and the Wurundjeri. But my uh, my family connections are to Western Victoria, so um, Wachabalak country, border town. Um, but I, I, I don't really identify as being from there. I've always lived here and. Um, this is where my home is, with ties into Bass Strait Islands. Uh, I've been at the National Gallery of Victoria for three years. And before that, I was at Swinburne University, where I was lecturing in design anthropology, which was uh, kind of looking at the intersection between anthropo how anthropological research methods and methodologies can be applied to design problems. Anyway, I've been at the gallery for three years. And so, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, my name's Hannah Robertson. I'm a non-Indigenous woman from of English, Irish and Scottish descent. Um, and I'm here because for the last decade or so I've been partnering, collaborating with different Indigenous groups, largely in Northern Australia, in Cape York and North East Arnhem Land. And I work as a lecturer um, and innovation fellow at Monash University. Um, I'll be finishing up there shortly in the the next week. Actually, Sarah and I had a handover in our office today. Um, and then in January, I'll be going to the University of Melbourne to continue um, doing research and teaching in these roles. Um, but primarily, the work that I do is relating to um, working on homelands, so the re most remote um, uh, communities that are on traditional lands. Uh, and it's quite embedded with land management practices, as well as looking at um, using natural resources and um, local upskilling in the process of building um, to support sustainable livelihoods on country and people living on country. Nyata, Nyatuk Gunditmara, Nyatu Nyat Lingyong Rubenberg. Hi everybody, my name's Ruben. Uh, I'm a Gunditmara man. My family comes from Framingham. Uh, I have a background in architecture. Uh, studied architecture up at UQ, uh, up in Queensland. And through that architectural role, I became involved in, and as, as a founder of Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria. Uh, since founding that, I've gone on to hold a variety of different other uh, appointments that I've got at the moment, and I'll try and remember what some of them are for you. Uh, I'm a commissioner for the Victorian Environmental Water Holder, so looking after the water for the environment here in Victoria across the state. Uh, I'm also a director at Western Port Water down at Phillip Island, so looking after their drinking water and sewerage. I'm also a member of the Heritage Council of Victoria, so uh, an Aboriginal representative on the Heritage Council, which was a new appointment that the legislation changed uh, last year to ensure there was an Aboriginal person on the Heritage Council of Victoria, ensuring that that process included Aboriginal voices. I've also just been elected as a member of the First People's Assembly of Victoria, so working towards the framework for treaty uh, for here in Victoria. And probably most importantly to tonight's discussion, I'm also the chair of the World Flying Disc Federation Ultimate Rules Committee. So I write the rules of Ultimate Frisbee for the entire world. So if you want to ask me about that, come and have a conversation. Walawani uh, Jindawan. Um, I'm Danielle Hromek, and I'm a Badawang woman of the UN Nation. That's on the south coast of New South Wales. There's a big fire threatening my family lands right now, so... Um, wish it well. Um, I live now between Gadigal country, which is in Sydney, and Bunjalung country, which is on the far north coast of New South Wales. I've just moved back to my family farm called Boogeram. And uh, there was a fire threatening that a few weeks ago as well. So I'm a bit about fires at the moment. Um, I, just I just can now call myself a doctor. I mean... <laughs> 
completed my PhD uh, just recently and it's uh, re relating to how do we, uh, First Peoples, Aboriginal people in particular, know, love, dream, narrate, sense, sing our spaces and how have we always done that? Um, how has, how has colonisation traumatised space and how can we as First Peoples reclaim space? And I was particularly looking at cultural practices to reclaim spaces. Uh, I, I'm consulting and uh, mainly doing research work at the moment uh, across a few places, including uh, New South Wales Government Architects, um, the Office of Environment and Heritage, looking at what's happening out at Wyanamata South Creek, which is where the airport's going to be built in Western Sydney. And um, also some work with City of Sydney and um, with the Centre for the Advancement of Indigenous Knowledges. And I'm looking, working on a short-term project with them about micro-credentials. So that's looking at how, how can people, academics in particular, um, work with Indigenous students, um, both postgraduate and undergraduate, and also how do you design curriculum uh, that includes Indigenous content. Uh, but I'm really interested in continuing my research because I think there's a lot more that has to be said yet um, about how do designers, architects and planners collaborate better with country and with the, the culture and the people of that country because I don't think we've nailed that in any way yet. Um, but more than that, I'm, more, I'm interested in how can culture be flourishing. So it's much more than sustaining, sustainable. I'm talking about more than just being sustainable. I'm talking about how does culture flourish in the spaces that we're creating. So. Thank you. Um, I probably know many of you, but my name is Sarah Lynn Reese. I'm a Plank Marina Trollway woman from northeast Tasmania. I work at uh, Jackson Clements Boris Architects and have just started at Monash University to start to develop some of these practice guides for protocols in architecture. So collaborating with traditional owners to understand their perspectives uh, on what we should be doing in the, throughout the architectural process. So watch this space. Um, I have the privilege of uh, curating the Black Architecture series every year and this year I'd like to also acknowledge Jack Mitchell who has been collaborating with me. He's a Noongar man and also works at JCB. Um, <clears throat> and I, one of the greatest privileges of this process is inviting people much smarter than me and much more knowledgeable than me and asking lots of questions. So that's what I'm going to do right now. Um, I'm going to start with a few questions but please feel free to ask each other questions if anything comes up. It's all very loose and casual. Everyone's chill and happy. We're good. Um, the first question that I'm going to ask to you, Ruben. Uh, frisbee? Is, uh, frisbee, absolutely. Yes, 100%. Uh, is, can you define for us what a protocol is? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I guess I should have mentioned as part of my introduction that I also I run, my day job is to run workshops around culture and what cultural protocols are and uh, how to better engage with our community and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. And so... Basically, what I would say protocols are, it's about uh, thinking about behaviours, about how we engage with one another through protocols. And for lots of people in your day-to-day -day lives, if you're engaging with people from the same cultural background as you, you have a whole lot of assumed protocols about how you're going to go about things. So you don't necessarily have to stop and think about what those protocols might be. And protocols become much more important when you're engaging across cultures with people from a different background who their 
assumed way of how they live their lives might be quite different from your assumption of how you live your life. And that's why being able to list what those protocols are, what are those assumptions about how we might engage, how we might interact, how we might talk, what language we might use, what our behaviours might be, being able to really kind of understand those things so we all are in agreement of what we might expect to be normal within that interaction, uh, that's what protocols are about to me. Anybody else want to answer that question? No? Everyone's satisfied with that answer? That's a very good answer. That's a very good answer. Um, so this question is open to all of you, but uh, I'm curious to know how protocols are embedded in your practice or what you do in your day-to-day -day lives within your work as you interface with other people uh, and how that might work or not work uh, in any given situation. Very broad question, so interpret it how you like. I'll go first. Um, I think that there's a sort of... There's an assumption at the, at the gallery that... Um, there is going to be this special set of protocols to work with Aboriginal people and with Aboriginal art, which is sometimes there is. But a lot of the time we're dealing with contemporary artists who are no different to any other contemporary artists. They're making work for sale for the gallery and they need to be treated as contemporary artists who are capable of um, participating in the contemporary art world. And there's this kind of assumption when you're in that space that, oh, if something's, if something's Aboriginal, it got anything to do with Aboriginal people, Aboriginal art, it has to be run by another Aboriginal person in the building. And by the way, there's only three of us. So it's not like, you know, that's, that's a huge demand on your time and your resources. Um, so I guess there's this kind of want to engage with protocols. There's this want to do the right thing. There's this want to make sure that, oh, we've got to make sure we're not being racist. Constantly, we've got to make sure we're not being racist. But actually, the most difficult thing that we encounter is this kind of want to invent protocols when you're dealing with Aboriginal people that are, you're just dealing with people. That's, that's kind of for the contemporary collection um, because anything that we've acquired from someone which was made for sale and for viewing should be treated as, it was, as if it was made for sale and for viewing. But we also have an inherited collection, a legacy collection of artefacts and of material, um, some of which is old, uh, some of which is restricted, some of which is secret sacred, some of which we probably shouldn't have in the collection, but what do you do with it once you inherit it? Who do you um, give it back to? How do you give it back? And, you know, we work toward that, but there's a whole manner of things that you kind of challenges that you have. And I think that's for me where um, cultural protocol is most important because I can't speak on behalf of that material. There is no artist to speak on behalf of that material, so who can? And it's finding someone who can and following the protocols of that community. And so generally we will... I just see my, like my job as just making space for other people to... other much smarter than me people to advise. And so particularly with, yeah, the 19th century material of which we don't have a lot because we used to be... the museum and NGV and State Library all used to be one institution. We had an ugly divorce and they got all the stuff, um, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, because Aboriginal art was considered artefact and so it was put in the museum. Uh, it what didn't come to the NGV. And so we have a very small collection of old material, but that's the collection where I think protocol, cultural protocol is most important because I can't speak on behalf of it. I don't know what's public, what's secular, what's restricted, what's sensitive. There are things that can be not restricted, but they're sacred. So there's secret sacred, but then there's also public sacred. And so how do you write about that? What can you put on a label? 
someone might tell you a story um, and you might assume, because you've been told that story, you can then tell someone else that story or you can write that on a label, but that's not true. You were told that story. And just because you're in a position of power to be able to write a label doesn't mean that you're in a position of power, power to be able to tell that story. So I guess as a curator, it's always just about trying to say, well, what's, how can I give up power? How can I make space for other people to let their protocol guide the material that we, that we are custodians for? Yeah. Um, so I think yeah, that's a fantastic answer. It's hard to follow up on actually, but it's quite different, I think, in sense in of the work that um, I've been involved with. Um, I also want to acknowledge too that it's a real privilege to be a part of this panel um, as well. I'm not an Indigenous person, so being here and being able to share this experience of engaging in this work is is also really um, a privilege. Um, but the the key thing that I think underpins all of the work um, in the collaborations and the partnerships that we've formed is that it's been driven by um, the, old, the traditional owners themselves and they've already articulated the overall goals and vision for what the projects are that we work on. And so my role is one of technical facilitation um, with a background in architecture and construction. Uh, those skills are things that you put to work um, to support those goals. Um, and so basically, it's about enabling um, and about listening, and first and foremost about listening. And I think um, the first thing that all of the projects are underpinned by is getting out on country as quickly as possible um, and sitting down on country um, and listening. And that's as much an important process for um, the traditional owners that I work with work with to sort of suss out whether they want to work with me, whether it's culturally appropriate for someone like me to be on their country, um, as much as it is for me to work out what the project actually is, maybe what the site is, um, and what the remoteness constraints are, what the opportunities are, and how, um, you know, to go about that moving forward. One of the kind of major areas of protocol development that I guess have been engaged with since being at Monash has been about how to bring students into that process. And many of them are here tonight, which is really special and lovely to see. Um, and the ethics process is fantastic for that, um, as is Ruben's training, which I've done many times. So <laughs> I highly recommend it to everybody. Um, but the ethics process is really important because it provides an opportunity to create a framework um, through which to articulate how you can create an armature for a project that creates enough flexibility to adapt to changes as they ar arise over the course of a project, but also enough safety to know how uh, knowledge will be co-authored, what knowledge will be shared, what knowledge will be not shared, um, because there's obviously different layers to which knowledge is available, to which it's shared in a private capacity, and then to which it's shared in something that you could publicly share. And everything is co-authored and checked along the way, and that's part of the project that we're mainly working on at the moment is the Okla Cultural Knowledge Centre, which is about getting cultural artefacts back on country, um, 
and a lot of the collection uh, of Olkula's artefacts are held in Brisbane and about getting those artefacts back out on Olkula country on their land um, as well as a place for scientific and cultural um, land management research um, and ranger activities and biodiversity control. So there's a number of activities that are happening at this place and so navigating those activities and how um, this building can be something that can support that and then bringing students in to actually do that work. It's really about um, articulating in small gradated steps how you can achieve that and in a way that's realistic and achievable at each of those stages. And even then sometimes I think there's been faltering in the way you know, that that has happened, um, you know, because I think I've got a tendency to have set the expectations high. But I have to say that <laughs> despite doing that, but probably to the students had, had to cop that in a sense that they worked incredibly hard to achieve those outcomes. But I think in terms of them also having a relationship with the traditional owners, that, would, that was always why um, they were able to rise to that challenge and you know, provide something that is actually at the stage where we can practically use it towards building this this building. So, yeah, it's really about that co-authorship. Right. I hope you didn't have more than one question there. But, sorry, uh, sorry. No, no, I think there's been some excellent uh, answers there so far. I've got a kind of a more briefer answer, I guess. And I think to me one of the most important things when I'm talking about cultural protocols in the work that I do, whether that's in the educational setting, whether that's around heritage or around water uh, or around design, is to hopefully make people realise what, what cultural protocols aren't, like what they're not, and what they're not are some magical little guide, some risk management checklist to make sure you never do the wrong thing. Like that's not what they are. And often the first question I have when people are talking about cultural protocols is, I just want to make sure I get it right. Like, how do I not say the wrong thing? How do I make sure I get it right? And the most important thing I tell people who ask me that is, you can't get it right. Like, it's okay to get it wrong. You are going to get it wrong. Uh, because our, cult our community is so diverse that there's not one right way. There's not some flow chart you can go through to know what words you should say or when you should consult and how you should do it. Uh, there isn't one way to do it right. And so it's about realising that it's, it's about respect, it's about listening, it's about a process, not so much of just a checklist of knowing the right way to do it because despite your best intentions, you will still get it wrong and that's okay. It's better to try with the best of intentions and get it wrong uh, and learn from that and not have a universal learning from that, not, well, now I know I'll always do it this way, but just to learn that for this community, for this person, this is the protocol that works for them. Uh, and that's one of the most important things for me, is realising what they are and what they aren't. Yep. Um, kind of what he said. <laughs> no, and in, from, a research, um, from a research perspective, when I was doing my PhD, um, I had to go through the ethics process really early because I had to talk to people almost immediately because of the nature of my PhD that there weren't... Uh, people who'd done this sort of work before. So it was really foundational work. And then I realised that the ethics process really wasn't enough. It was helpful, but it wasn't enough. Um, and what I really needed to do, because, of course, research is a dirty word for Aboriginal communities, including my own community, was to ask them how this is going to work for them. 
and how, what do you want, to, how do you want to talk to me about this? Where do you want to do it? Um, and what, you know, how does, how do you want this relationship to be, how do you want it to be? And that opened up all of the other doorways, but it was more of a conversation than a checklist. It was more, um, hey, Unc, uh, I want to, can I come and have a yarn with you about, about country and about space? Um, where would you like to do that? Uh, can I record you? Do you know that when I record you, this is what's going to happen? And just speaking in a really open way about all of those steps until... And then going back and doing it again and then going and calling him and reading every single thing I wrote about him on the phone, which took an hour and a half, and doing the same for my grandmother and doing, and doing that over and over again. And so this was over a four-year process that I was asking these questions um, and checking in that I'd said the right thing with them. Um, to, and that they were, that they were thrilled with what I'd written. That it wasn't just that it was they were okay with it. That they were thrilled with it, and they felt that it reflected them, and that they were special in it because they were special in it. They meant it, it meant everything to my PhD that that these people who who shared with me were in it. Thank you. Um, I think one of the struggles that people have, or maybe from I can't speak on behalf of non-Indigenous people, but the predominant question that at least I'm received is how do you know what protocols are going to apply in what, in what communities? Uh, and so I'm going to ask that question to you guys, but then also perhaps a little bit of a leading question, how do you co-design those into the project? Um, I, you don't, first of all. You don't and you can't, and every community is different, and even if it there might be certain protocols. When you first visit a community, the second time you go back, they might change. Um, so generally, just be a decent human. Like, be a, be a kind person, listen, um, show respect. Uh, you know, don't be frightened of walking on eggshells. Um, I, you know, I mean, don't walk on eggshells. I mean, don't be frightened of trying. If you're a good person and if you're um, open, I think that is the... The, the one cultural protocol that you will find is consistent in every First Nations community across the planet is just being a decent person. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the, the key. I, I don't think there's one set of protocols and um, it is. It's just about being open. And I mean, particularly in a project like this where you're asking people to collaborate and participate in a project, you're asking things from people at the end of the day. And as much as it is about um, something that has been articulated as a need and something people want, um, you know, your involvement means that you have to share yourself as well. So you need to be able to openly share that as much as you are receiving, getting to know people as well. But it's really human, you know? Yeah. I can give a more technical answer, more practical answer as well, is that sometimes you can just Google it too. Like, <laughs> I, I know many Aboriginal communities who have on their website yeah, a list yeah. of these are our protocols for our community. And so there are practical an answers out there. And, and it's often for our benefit as an Aboriginal community. If you can get out there the message of, well, this is what, how we expect you to behave, it's to our benefit and it's to other people's benefit. So you can just Google the answers sometimes. Uh, but another, I think another thing, a really important element of this too, is that it's often just about actively watching what's going on. And not just assuming that what you feel you would normally do is going to be the normal thing to do in the situation you're in. And most of us are pretty familiar with doing that already. 
if you go to someone's house for the first time and you notice that all their shoes are by the door, right, you don't necessarily have to be told this is a house where you take your shoes off. You can look, you can see, well, they took their shoes off, they took their shoes off, I should probably take my shoes off. Like, you can just watch and see, observe what's going on, and if you're not sure, you can say, oh, should I take my shoes off as well? You know, that's fine, but you, you can watch and see what's going on and react accordingly. Uh, that's a, another really important part of it. Sometimes silence is the answer as well, like, just shut up. Yeah, they're cool. Um, <laughs> Uh, can you give us an example perhaps of a project or an experience that you've had where uh, protocols haven't been in place or you've been hampered by a system that hasn't allowed you to uh, conform to protocols and what the negative aspects of that have been? Yep. I, um, I was working on a project for a government uh, department and they told me who I should consult with. And it turns out those people were part of my family and I should have just said no um, because it, it actually was almost impossible. In fact, it was impossible and it was awful and, in the, and it was stressful and um, they hadn't followed any protocols correctly. The project was lovely but I should have just said no because in the end you can't really... Like, I can't do consultation with my own family even though I know them really well and they're fantastic and they would be perfect to be consulted with in that project. Just being told who to consult with um, was a major learning. And also um, uh, that this wasn't brought in and I wasn't brought in right from the beginning to do this work. Uh, it was way too late. So it was a big learning curve for me and I've actually said no to several projects since then. Um, so I'm quite grateful to learn that, but it was really awful. Uh, one of the things I've seen quite common in, in the work that I've been involved in is the not allowing enough time to do it properly. Uh, and that's a, a common thing, that there's this sense that, oh, we've got a consultant, we'll just do it, be able to do it really quickly and that's going to work somehow. And there's lots of problems with that. One is that often the Aboriginal community's priorities are not necessarily the same as what your priorities might be, and that's totally understandable that they might not see your project as being the most important thing in the world. They've got other things to worry about and sometimes that's just the reality. Also, my experience working with the Aboriginal community and part of the Aboriginal community is that there's often a reluctance for one person to kind of like be able to speak on behalf of everybody. And so it's really easy to consult if you just say, well, I just need to find one representative they'll be able to speak on behalf of everybody and that's going to be really easy, just one person and then you're done. Uh, that's very rare and often in the types of projects I've seen that groups will have a, a process where they need to actually consult with their entire community about a decision. They won't make a decision until they've actually had a big meeting with all of their members, all of their community come together and they get a say on that. And that meeting might only happen four times a year. And so if you've got a decision you need to be making, you want, you want some information from that community, you're going to have to wait for that meeting uh, to actually get that information. And so realising the time involved in following those protocols correctly is a really, really important thing to get right. Uh, yeah, I, I, think it's, I think in many ways um, some of the practices now are actually shaped by some experiences where cultural protocols haven't been followed in the past. Um, and by having practice also shape future protocols too. So a reflexive practice of learning what hasn't worked in the past because I think, um, yeah, some of the 
the early work that I have been involved with was through and in collaboration with an Indigenous organisation um, that had its own agenda, which dis didn't necessarily align with the traditional owners or the families that I was working with who were building their own houses. Um, and it was the conflict of that process um, that caused me to question why I was doing this type of work and to then leave that organisation um, and to then pursue a PhD to try and think about other ways of doing things. So uh, it nearly scared me off, I have to say, um, but it was the process of actually reflecting on that although it was difficult, um, that has actually, I think, enhanced the process now. And it's really nice now to be able to be in a, a, a bunch of different partnerships where things are going a lot better and where if there is a threat to protocol or to something that you think will lack time or like not speaking to the right people and letting the process take its time and, and run its course, that Nah, that comes first. You know, if the project gets stalled, it gets stalled. Yeah, but we'll get there eventually. Yeah. Um, I think the, the consistent challenge that we face is that it's impossible to follow cultural protocol if you're bringing Aboriginal people into a half-commenced project. So often people will kind of come to me and say, oh, we need to do community consultation with this community. Here's the blueprints. It's already half built. And can you just get them to tick, like sign a waiver saying it's all good? And it's kind of like, well, no, that's not, that's not a protocol. And it's also just not respectful. It's just like... Um, it's, it's offensive to ask people their opinion on something that you're obviously not going to listen to because you've already done it. And so I think, um, yeah, that's the challenge that we tend to find is that it's almost like people only um, remember to consult when they're, when they're told and they're generally only told when people say, why haven't you consulted and why has this moved so far or whatever. And that's with exhibitions, that's with commissions, that's with buildings, that's with anything which, um, which would benefit from first people's knowledge. And I think that the, the, like the thread that ties all of that is that consultation and you know, following cultural protocol is still seen as this obstacle to overcome. And it's not yet seen as an asset when it is such an asset. Because, I mean, when I put together an exhibition a couple of years ago called Colony, uh, and it was looking at the period from 1770 to 1861. And we had a huge amount of um, material in the exhibition that I would have deemed as sensitive and I would have thought was the sort of material that would not, um, that, you know, traditional owners would not want us to include. Uh, so put it all together and went, you know, went to the traditional owners. None of the loans were locked in. Nothing was locked in. I wasn't saying this is what, is in the show, I was saying, this is some of the options for the show. And they loved all of it. They wanted all of it. And they knew more than I did. They knew more stories. They had more suggestions. And where I had been worried that maybe this, you know, a massacre map would be deemed as sensitive, they said, we've actually got three more and that's a really important story and we want you to tell it. So it's not, a, not an obstacle to kind of follow that protocol or do that consultation. You actually end up getting so much more knowledge um, and just... It's just a benefit for everybody. And so I think it's like the consistent issue I have is that it's, yeah, it's in the wrong 
consultation and and you know the remembering to follow protocol tends to kind of fall at the wrong point in most people's pro like journey on put, doing a project or whatever. Yes, that's I think that's the challenge. I think it's the same in architecture when someone, uh, well, like for example, someone says, "Oh, we've got Sarah," or "Oh, we've got Gifa," or "Oh, we've got Ruben," and we all of a sudden have the right to decide things on behalf of people. And like, no, sorry. Um, just because you've got an Indigenous person working on the project doesn't mean it's Indigenous-led or whatever protocol it is that you're following. Uh, it's got to be about the community's voice. It's not about ours. Um, I think I've probably asked one more question and then open out to the audience if everybody is to have a think. Um, my last question, and I like this question. You've already expressed st stress to this question. <laughs> um, if you could change one thing right now in regards to protocols or fire, um, what might that be? Or the way we operate or, you know, something okay, about the way the profession functions. I'm going to talk about fire. <laughs> no, um, well, maybe I will. Um, I, lived, I lived in the city for a long time before I moved to the country and I realised how disconnected um, I was from the truth of um, the countryside. And uh, it made me really concerned that we haven't properly understood how how badly we're doing things. Like, there's no water in the one of the wettest places in the country. We should be all terrified. We should be absolutely terrified that there's no water in one of the wettest places in the country. But we're sort of not. We're sitting here and very calm. <laughs> and so I want to say, I'm trying to say this to as many people as I can, but we need to stop doing things in the way that we are because we're, we're really messing things up really, really badly. Unless we start managing country differently and listening to First Peoples about how to do that because we've just had thousands of years much more experience than everyone else, um, uh, the city's going to burn too. And even the wettest places in the city will burn because that's what's coming, that's what's happening in the, the wettest places of the countryside. So I guess... Uh, I wish I could say this to all the governments um, that they are way... I say it to some and they just it's sort of... They start talking about insurance. And I'm like, well, but do you know that insurance isn't going to insure you, your house, because it's in the line of a fire or a flood pretty soon? And again, they start talking about insurance. But I think we just... We've missed that boat of listening to First Peoples about caring for country. And so I want, that's what I want to change because I'm terrified right now. I'm really, really, really scared that there's not enough water on my, on the, on the, wet, one of the wettest places and that it was about to burn a few weeks ago and that places that are really wet all for thousands and millions of years are burning right now. We should be really scared. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give a less extreme example. I think that's a very powerful example. I'm going to give a less, less extreme example of what I, I think I'd like to see change uh, around this area. And that is for people to not see our culture as some other. That's what I think is really important. And often I see when people are trying to engage with our culture, they still see it as some other thing that seems kind of really mysterious and strange and they don't quite understand it because it seems so different from what they have as part of their lives. And this is an example I give a lot, but I think it's a really powerful example for us to recognise that everybody has cultural traditions. Everyone has cultural protocols that from the outside might seem really strange and mysterious, right? And my favourite example to always give is birthday celebrations. 
pretty much everyone around here is going to have had a birthday celebration here in Australia. And it might seem to you completely normal that on the anniversary of the Earth going around the sun a certain number of times, we've celebrated that particular date and we, we bake this cake and then we, we stab flaming sticks into the top of this cake, right? Sometimes the number of sticks we stab in matches the number of times we've gone around the sun since we were born. And then we all gather around and sing this strange copyrighted song and different families have different protocols on who should say hip hip and, and who, sh who shouldn't. Uh, and then the birthday person's going to spit all over this cake and attempt to blow out these flaming sticks. And as they do so, they're going to make a wish, but you can't tell anyone the wish, otherwise it won't come true. So you've got to keep that a secret. That's an important part of that, that ceremony. And this is something that most people around here today will have done many times before, and that to you seems completely normal. That's not completely normal. That's really strange and mysterious. <laughs> That's what all people do. We all come together and have these amazing, wonderful traditions. And so the fact that Aboriginal people have things that to you might seem really mysterious and strange doesn't make us different. It makes us exactly the same as you. We are all people, all part of cultures. And it's about recognising some of those differences, realising that we are all people and that we can come together with respect and understanding as, as recognising the similarities that we have whilst respecting those differences as well. I think they're both great points and I agree with, fully with both of them. Um, the thing that I'll add is that... Um, I don't think this is about necessarily specifically Indigenous cultural protocols. It's about good practice cultural protocols in general. You know, it's about human inter interactions and about respecting others and about incorporating the views of other people into the design process rather than, you know, a des one designer's view. And I think... Um, something that has come out of the process of um, teaching, incorporating teaching into these research projects as well and these collaborations has been the fact that this has been something that has resonated or has seemed to resonate with a number of the students. And so um, what has emerged from that is a, a collaborative design group called Forum. Um, and we do gather uh, every fortnight and, and partner with local primary schools and different groups and communities here in um, Melbourne and much the same protocols apply to how we collaborate with those groups of people. I mean, every community is different and it really is important to recognise the differences um, and to celebrate those differences because it's those differences that actually make our world the most fascinating place it is. And as you say rightly, our land, you know, the knowledge that exists here is really incredible. And you talk about insurance. I've got a friend um, who I was out at um, a homeland in, called Bawaka up in northeast Arnhem Land a couple of years ago, about three or four days after a cyclone had gone through. And we were cleaning things up and sweeping stuff away. And um, there was a lot of grief because um, a tamarind tree that had been planted by Makassan, um, Makassar Indonesians who had traded with that area, was about 400, 500 years old, had um, huge branches had fractured off it during the course of this cyclone. And um, a few people asked me, they were like, oh, you know, do you reckon we can insure that tree? And I think that speaks a lot to another way of understanding country and something that we can all benefit from, particularly in the environmental crisis that we're sort of facing now. Yeah. Um, uh, I think if I could change anything, um, 
probably nothing about me without me. Um, I think that we have this kind of tendency to put Aboriginal people in positions of power, but not too high. Um, and there's still a group of white men who make the final decision. Um, and there can be, it can be really painful watching, um, you know, like any intervention into an Aboriginal community without an invitation is an act of colonialism. And the amount of times I see ideas about the collection or whatever starting at the table at the top and then kind of trickling down to us. And there's this sort of false sense of autonomy. As an Aboriginal person within an institution, there's this kind of like, you're told that you're in this position to make change. And I mean, I am in a position to make change, and I do. But I think that I'm one person. There's 250 different language groups plus in this country. And so that's... A, and it's a... I've seen the boardroom. It's a big table. We could fit a lot more Aboriginal people at that table. So, yeah, I think just nothing about me without me and more Aboriginal people in positions of power um, everywhere. All right. Does anybody in the audience have a burning question? Hi. Uh, thanks for a, a, a great um, discussion. Uh, I took so much away from that. And there's so much that I think each of you have said um, about um, you know, good practice consultation, good practice protocols, which um, you know, extend beyond simply the Indigenous space. And um, you know, uh, hearing you talk about the blueprint that's been established, the amount of times in, in water resource management in this city I've seen government processes develop a protocol for a 50-year strategy of the Yarra River. Oh, and then we'll engage the community after that and then tell us a story about how well, how good it was canoeing there in the 60s. And that's as far as the consultation goes. There's so much, so many lessons, I think, that can be taken from, um, from your experiences and, and from those ideas of protocols that can be applied universally in terms of the ways we bring people into their, you know, their country or their place. And I'm curious to hear a little more about your ideas in, in terms of what hope you see, perhaps what opportunities you see um, for uh, a richer um, process of consultation and engagement and empowerment in place. Yeah. Um, I'm, um, one of the projects I'm working on, they've got a, some consultants who are consulting with the broader community and they've asked me to look at the questions and it's about water. And um, they want to know, you know, uh, at the end, they want to rewrite something about water quality um, and what's poor water quality or good water quality. And I, um, I think there was a whole lot of assumptions that were made before they even uh, asked, started to write those questions. And I, I, my response was, well, what means good water quality or poor water quality or water management to you is probably a different thing to the Aboriginal community there. Um, because, you know, water management for you might be putting something in concrete or, or steel putting and letting water run through that, but that might be really poor water management for the Aboriginal community. And it's kind of, well, their heads exploded at that point and I the conversation is going to continue tomorrow, <laughs> so I don't know what will come out of that. But I think we need to st step backwards sometimes um, and not make assumptions about what, what may, you know, that all of the community are going to understand 
a particular topic in the same way. Because as soon as I saw that, I was like, well, that poor water, that's been encased in concrete and steel. That's how I thought of it. And they weren't even, that wasn't even on the radar for them. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, uh, pull backwards. Don't, don't assume that we have the same value systems about whatever that resource or whatever it is. Uh, I'm very hopeful about where we're heading. Uh, I've seen, even in my time working in these spaces, big shifts in, in wanting to better engage uh, with our community around many of these matters. And the fact that we have this process in place at the moment with treaty, uh, with the First People's Assembly, and we're going to have our first meeting next week in Parliament House uh, to come together as, as an Aboriginal community to try and work out what the framework's going to look like for treaty. And I'm pretty confident part of that's going to be around embedding First Nations voices in decision-making across the board to ensure that we are at the table, that we are the table, essentially, for those discussions, that we make the first decisions about many of these matters. So there is great willingness in this space. I think there's... There's, a, there's a, a thought that there's willingness to do this, I think, from the broader community, that people feel like it's a good idea to do these things. I, I think we're yet to really start taking the big steps of, of institutions relinquishing their power to First Nations people, of saying, well, actually, if we actually really care about self-determination and uh, Indigenous voices, we're going to have to give over control. Uh, and I think that's an idea that people are thinking about, but the practice of it, I think we're struggling with. But I think we'll get there, and I think treaty will help us to move in that direction too. Yeah, I'm also really optimistic because I think um, some of the groups that I work with, um, they are really inspirational and I take the, the lessons from them. Um, Olkula Aboriginal Corporation, who are a primary partner for a number of projects that we work on, um, are part of a group called Grassroots um, up in Cape York. Um, and there's a number of different traditional owner groups that share that office space. Um, and I just had a conversation today uh, with Deb, the CEO, and she said to me, you've got to get up here, um, as she said to me the other week, um, and we've got to try and find a time to do that, um, but you've got to get up here because Clayton keeps coming into the office and he keeps looking at the books that the students made about the Cultural Knowledge Centre and saying, where can I talk to these people and when can I get them out on Wooditi country to come and look at Rain Island, um, to look at what we're doing there in this ranger base. And, you know, we want to do something similar there. We want it to be a self-build. We want to do... And that speaks for itself a little bit. You know, if the work starts speaking for itself and then Clayton wants to talk to us, then that's, the, that's a good starting place. So I'll just take a lead from those types of things where if people want to work with us and we've got a way of working that resonates with them, then that's probably going to be a good basis for a partnership. So, yeah. Um, I agree with all three of you completely. I mean, that's that... Yeah, I'm not going to speak for long, but I guess it's that thing, decolonising means giving up power, and giving up power means making space, and making space, yeah, um, for other people, people who think differently. Um, and you're seeing it more and more because I think white people are finally realising that it's worth, you know, it's valuable. Like, it's not an obstacle. It's actually really, really valuable knowledge, knowledge that in a lot of instances um, is older, than what you might know, uh, it's observation-based. It's science. What is science? Science is observation-based. So how is any of that, like indigenous knowledge is just also, I find that word really dumb because it's just knowledge. 
It's just observation-based knowledge. And I think as soon as people start to realize the value in that, and the value in that is not hypothetical and it's not cultural, spiritual, emotional. The value in that is really practical. Like it's, it's practical in every way. So I think people are starting to learn that as well, yeah. So that's kind of, that's why I'm hopeful. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Um, I just have a question around the notion of decolonizing. And I was at a conference in Mon at Monash around um, talking about public art. Um, and there was a discussion around shifting from the notion of decolonizing because that's still centered around the idea of the colonizer and moving to indigenizing. So just curious around where that sits for you. Well, I think they both mean giving up power and making space. That's, you know, at the end of it, whatever word you use, it doesn't really bother me. Um, I, I always say decolonizing, but maybe I shouldn't say it. Uh, <laughs> but I guess it's, um, yeah, for me, it's, it's making space and giving up power, and it's the same thing no matter which way you look at it. And it's not just an indigenous problem. It's a problem for every minority and every um, person who isn't inherently, you know, sat at the top, like the apex predator of the world, the white, straight, cis men. Um, I, I, my PhD title was the re-indigenization of space. So I, um, I, I really struggle with the word decolonizing because um, we're still being colonized. Uh, so I spent the four years trying to work out how to use that word in my PhD and ended up not using it and explaining why. Uh, and the reasons were that firstly, um, yeah, I really struggled with the, the idea that we're supposed to, to decolonize while we're still being colonized and, um, and we're still being colonized every time that we're not being, the protocols that we have asked for aren't being adhered to, you know, or that somebody's making a decision on our behalf um, or we're having to walk these sorts of manicured uh, streets that are concrete and manicured grass because and those don't suit our feet and our bodies because our bodies are much more used to unmanicured um, country and movement without shoes we now have to wear shoes too and so um, I've I, that you know going down to that very simple level of you know how we move across space to me is a colonial way so I decided to use other words um, that were a little less um, uh, confronting for me in my PhD. Um, and they were talking around decolonizing, but they weren't decolonizing. I felt it was much less pressure on me. I also felt like decolonization has been a bit hijacked and it's a bit of a buzzword right now, and I just didn't want to engage with that, um, yeah, with that buzzword and I wanted something that was going to last a lot longer for, you know, related to, to me and my family and my extended kin who were actually working with me in this, pro in this project, which was my PhD. So, yeah, I, um, I think I only used the word a couple of times at the beginning when I said I'm not going to use it. I think if I get, oh, I'll answer this question as well. Um, I tend to avoid using the word decolonizing because it has been 
Uh, it's become a dirty word because it has been used so much. And when you say it in a public forum, people's eyes tend to glaze over and their ears go fuzzy and they can no longer hear what you're saying because it has been so politicised. Uh, and so I, I always opt to use the word indigenising because at least it has a positive connotation. We're adding something rather than taking something away, even if that thing needs to be taken away from. It's still reframed in a positive manner. That's my preference on language. How other people use it is completely up to them. I think it's up to every individual's understanding of what that word means. Um, please join me in thanking our wonderful speakers. I very much uh, appreciate you guys taking the time in your evenings uh, to come down here or to fly across the country. Uh, I always find these conversations uh, grounding and remind us of what we're doing and why we're doing it. And uh, thank you guys all for coming and braving the weather on this not so lovely day. And if your mates couldn't be here, just let them know that we do record all of these so you can find them online if you want to listen back or if you want to share it with anyone. Thank you. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.